Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Religion. I'm Marshall Poe. As you may know, if you listen to New Books and Religion, I am, in fact, not the host of the channel. Uh, I am the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I really wanted to read the book that we're going to be talking about today, so I'm poaching New Books in Religion's territory, and I'm serving as a kind of guest host on the channel. The book that I really really wanted to read is by Joshua Dubler, and it's called Down in the Chapel, uh, Religious Life in an American Prison. And it's a really interesting book. It's interesting as a piece of scholarship because it's really, well, I don't know if I should say this. I, I don't know if I can say this. It's like no other piece of scholarship I think I've ever read. Uh, it's it's um, uh, J- Joshua happily puts himself right in the story, and that makes it really fascinating and interesting. And he also tells us a lot about religion in American prisons, uh, which, is, which is something that you sort of see on TV and hear about on the radio and so on and so forth. But this is what we would call the uh, the straight dope about what goes on. And so uh, the first thing I want to do is thank Joshua for writing the book and welcome him to the show. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you kick the interview off by telling us a little bit about yourself, Joshua? Yeah, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Rochester. Uh, I did this work when I was getting my graduate degree in religion at Princeton uh, I'm from New York City, and uh, I assume, uh, given the way that I impose myself on, on the narrative, uh, more of my background will come up over the course of the next hour. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You make a very good point there, because um, you bring things to the table. And, and the thing about it, the interesting about the book is that every scholar brings things to the table. It's just you're honest about it. <laughs> um, you know, I do one of the uh, animating impulses behind the experimental form, and, and, and there are a great number of them. But one of the animating impulses is, um, you, you know, I, I don't think the book is reinventing the wheel. I think it's, I think it's positioned in in a rather rich tradition of experimental ethnography. But one of the things that I'm trying to do is to break down the the, the kind of uh, unthought um, way that. Uh, writing a book necessarily uh, divides the world into those who write and those who are written about. Um, so uh, bringing myself into the frame uh, in some way, I, w- I was hoping it would have a, a leveling effect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you did. One of the purposes of the New Books Network, we deal with new books mostly by scholars, is to uh, demonstrate to people who don't write books that uh, these artifacts do not fall from the sky, that they are parts of people's lives. And in this case, it was a really a big part of your life. It kind of took over your life. Um, so that, 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 that's really terrific for us because it does, you know, the book is about your experience and, and full stop. And that, that's a really great thing. I think it, it tells people a lot about the way these books come about. Yeah. And not to, not to skip to the end, but, um, uh, you know, one of the animating, um, I guess tensions in the book is uh, I'm uh, I'm in fact uh, a practicing a Jew somewhat, but I would think of myself as epistemically and deep down um, a secularist, and uh, uh, I'm in dialogue with uh, with men who have very fierce uh, religious commitments. Um, so, and, and making sense of. Uh, my way of being in the world to them and their way, uh, way of being in the world to me uh, is really, I think, some of what makes the, the book very interesting. So this is apropos of you saying that in some way uh, the book took over my life. So w- one of the ways that I make sense uh, of of, ha- of what we have in common, these men as religious men, me as a secularist, is uh, via uh, 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 Alain Badu's notion of fidelity to the event. So uh, definitely a, a man who gave himself to Christ on such and such a day tries to live in fidelity to that event and to that feeling of fervor and certitude that he had uh, in a moment where he where he became someone that he wasn't before. Similarly, uh, a man who took his shahada on such and such a day uh, has a similar relationship to a moment in his past. And as I and, and as I allude to toward the end of the book, um, you know, this book, the 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 time that I spent doing this field work. Uh, uh, has such uh, a structural um, uh, relationship to to who I am, um, and and needs to. You know, this is a book um, uh, that comes from um, a kind of political imperative, and it's the kind of book uh, the the justifiability or the, the the success of this book to to some significant degree will be determined by uh, do I live the rest of my life. Uh, um, 
in infidelity to uh, what I learned and the men that I that I that I got to know and uh, and and do I do I embrace those obligations? So this is just apropos of the book having taken over my life. Yeah. I, I I I embrace that. Yeah, I mean, I like what you say, and it kind of parallels my own experience about I, I am. I am, I do practice a, a, a faith, I guess I would say. And, uh, 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 but I am surrounded by people, especially in the academy who do not and are much more secular than I am. And I'm quite secular. Um, the people that I practice this faith with, though, uh, have a very fervent belief in God. I mean, like in, yeah. the, in the, in the, in the big G sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I deal with them a lot. And, and it's been kind of transformational for me to, to, to try to be with them. And, um, and for them to try to be with me, I imagine. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and, and this is something I think about quite a bit. So let's get, let's get into, let me ask you one question before we talk about the book. I, I, I kind of already answered it, but why did you write this book? Yeah. So I, I would say like, let's deal with the, with the two, the two different radicals. So, uh, on the one hand, um, religion, uh, it seems to me that the study of religion is, is, uh, is populated with, uh, with people who, with an emphatic ambivalence to the tradition of their upbringing. Uh, that seems to be often be the calling, or yeah. if not an emphatic ambivalence, at least at the moment in your 20s when you're figuring out what the hell you're going to do with your life, you have an emphatic ambivalence. So that's true in my case. Uh, my ambivalence uh, was, not, uh, was not tortured at the moment that I chose this career. But, uh, you know, I was, I was raised by um, essentially... Orthodox is a slight exaggeration, but Orthodox agnostic Jews. And when I figured out that that's who I was being raised by when I was 17 or 18 years old, uh, I got into the study of religion in college and, and read Durkheim and so on and so forth. And so it, it was kind of that that was the calling uh, to study religion. Um, as for prisons, um, I, I was I was raised by uh, by leftists. Um, I was born in 1974. Um so, you know, when I was six years old, uh, when, I was, when I was born, there would have been, uh, you know, 300,000 people in prison uh, in this country. And by the time I was uh, 30, there would have been uh, well over 2 million. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, the ex you know, the explosion of incarceration that is, you know, sometimes called mass incarceration in the United States uh, has been, to me, one of the, uh, just a defining characteristic um, uh, of our age. Uh, and so I, I felt called to that, too, uh, uh, from the time that I was a, a young person mm -hmm. uh, to try to uh, engage with that, try to combat that uh, in some way. Mm -hmm. Well, I very much admire you because I, I kind of went through a similar experience, not with prisons, but with religion, but much later in my life where I mm – -hmm. I wouldn't say I went back to the same church I was born in. I was born in a Lutheran. I mean, I was raised a Lutheran. I'm not a Lutheran, mm -hmm. but – but I, and now I do think about it a lot, and I mean I do practice it, and I and I see the value in it that I couldn't uh, in my Holden uh, 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 Caulfield days when everybody was a faker. Um, and you, I'm sorry, in your what days? My my Holden Caulfield days, you know. Oh, your Holden yeah, Caulfield yeah, days, yeah, 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 yeah. When like everybody yeah, yeah. was a faker, and it was all right. It was all BS. Our, and, our, I would say, you know, at our best, we're fakers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll you, know, my 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 life partner would, I think, she would wish that I would fake it a little more. I'm I'm very comfortable with just how lazy uh, and abject uh, that I really am when I'm with her. But you know, but when we're trying to be better people than than we happen to be, yeah. uh, whether it be professional or whether it be ethically, uh, we're, we're, we're always uh, uh, faking. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a woman named Jennifer Hart who wrote a book called Putting on Virtue yeah. that, uh, that does a kind of Aristotelian spin on, on virtue ethics. And, uh, yeah. and that's her point. You know, it's like, yeah, we're, of course we're faking. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, is funny, you know, because I mean, and you're alluding to, you know, one of the themes in the book because, uh, you know, we do, one of the, the knee-jerk assumptions that I assume that some readers will bring to the book is that uh, the men in the book are fakers, right? Because you know, the way that we can conceptualize religion uh, as this kind of um, uh, relationship to one's ultimate concern right. and the way that we conceptualize prisoners as, you know, defined by their crime. So this person is just a rapist or a murderer. Uh, then we then we assume that when a prisoner professes a religious faith that uh, that he or she is just faking it. Right. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because more broadly, and this was true in my own life, I'll just speak from my personal experience. For many years, I just thought to myself about religious people, they can't really believe that. I mean, come on, nobody, right. no rational person could really believe that. Right. Which is just silly. I mean, I look back on it and I mean, I was just not only incredibly arrogant, but kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I have to assume uh, as a starting point that people uh, believe what they say. Yeah, I mean, no, I think, I mean, a long I think time to get to that. 
you know, uh, uh, Charles Taylor's notion of the imminent frame, like, does kind of assume that there's something about modernity, that if you have that kind of faith commitment, then you are in some kind of sense always already opting in. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't, that it doesn't come uh, kind of naturally and unthought. I, I don't know, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think that... Um, uh, at a place like Greaterford Prison, and, and I would say that Greaterford Prison in this regard is just a place in America, um, uh, people generally assume that, that, you know, as they would say, God is who he said he was. Yeah. You know, uh, whether that be through a, a Christian or a Muslim framework, uh, the assumption that there is a, a God roughly like uh, the one that we encounter uh, through the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament and the Quran, and that he made the world in some, you know, in some relationship to us humans and, and in, 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 in relationship to me uh, as an individual, that's like that, that idea comes naturally to, to most, to many of our countrymen. Yes. I think that's absolutely women. right. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. It was, it was really only after I got into academia that I started not to think, I mean, I really didn't think like that anymore. I was taught not to think like that. And I'm not saying academia is a bad place or that it secularizes you or whatever, but yeah. um, it was, it was a learned behavior and it was a learned reaction on my part. And, and it took yeah. me a long time to wrap my mind around the fact that most people weren't like me, even though, you know, I was like from the Midwest and I grew up in a humble background and church going people and, you know, but still I, and there was an arrogance involved in it, I have to say, but anyway, that's good. enough about me. Well, about <laughs> arrogance, but, you know, but we're all provincial in our own way, you know, and, and, uh, that's some of the joys of doing ethnography is that you, uh, you, your own, you know, your own provinciality is thrown into stark relief. And, and sometimes in, in dialogue with people that you're, uh, writing about and, uh, you know, you, you, uh, enable a certain kind of, uh, critical reflection on, on, on their ways of being <laughs> in the world. And that's, <laughs> you know, those are, uh, you know, coming out of, uh, a tradition going back to to, to Plato, you know, uh, those moments are, uh, you know, some of the best moments that the world has to offer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I was just teaching Plato. You should mention it. Um, so, how did you how did you end up in a Greaterford prison? Why there? Uh, Greaterford prison. I mean, I think. Um, uh, because they would let me in is the, is the simple answer. I mean, I was, so I was doing my degree at Princeton at the time. And, um, you know, you do ethnography where you are. I had been doing volunteer work uh, in the New Jersey system, and I had gotten permission to do uh, this project at Rahway. Um, right. and, uh, and then the permission was revoked uh, for reasons that uh, were never made exactly clear. But um, basically, New Jersey at the time had no uh, uh, human subjects review board at all. It was totally ad hoc. Really? Uh, hmm. And they had a, a secretary of corrections who seemed to have his heart in the right place. Anyway, so he suspended it um, before I began. And then so I looked to neighboring states. Pennsylvania's uh, system, in part because um, uh, the, the Philadelphia Society for the Alleviation of Public Miseries, uh, the group that in some way uh, designed the prototype uh, of the penitentiary, um, Back in the uh, in the 1780s, 90s, um, uh, they became uh, the the Pennsylvania Prison Society, and uh, they're a kind of insider watchdog group, um, uh, and they are allowed access to everywhere in the system. So as the system has developed over the past 200 plus years, it's just a system that a state system that's relatively porous. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's easier uh, to to get into uh, a Pennsylvania prison than it is to other prisons. Mm-hmm. And Greaterford is the, I call it the, the cultural flagship of the, of the Pennsylvania state system. It mm-hmm. is a, uh, you know, it's 30 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a prison that in many ways uh, is Philadelphia soil, uh, both because of, uh, you know, the people who work there, the people who are incarcerated there, uh, the volunteers who come in to do programming, you know, it's, 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 it's a downstate facility. It's a relatively vibrant place. A lot of people come and go, uh, not like it used to be. And perhaps we'll talk about the kind of administrative shift that happened in the 90s uh, where, you know, a sort of culture of control such as it is was instituted. But it still is, is, is a place with a fair amount going on. So when I, when I petitioned the, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, it seemed to them like the obvious place to do the project. Mm-hmm. And what do they do with you? I mean, how do they let you in the prison? And, you know, what kind of access did you have? Um, startlingly unfettered access, uh, at least in theory. So I had asked them um, uh, only for access to the chapel because my um, uh, my requests. I, I thought that a prison administrator would regard it as frivolous, uh, and they came back and essentially, you know, said that I could go wherever I wanted. Um, I mean, it's a 
Greaterford is an old prison. It's not, you know, I think that uh, this this will vary prison to prison, state to state. But certainly the new prisons that have been built in the last 20 years that are built to be much more controlling. Uh, I assume that, you know, one of these prisons has your movement, from my experience, is much more regimented. Uh, at a place like Greaterford, like once you're there, you kind of blend in uh, and you um, it's uh, it's not hard to, to move around. I mean, you have the right to move around. As a volunteer, you need to be escorted. But if you're an employee, you can, uh, or I, I was officially an intern, you can go where, where you want. Um, it so happened, though, that uh, I uh, assimilated certain kinds of mores from the chaplains. So um, while I had the, the right to go wherever I wanted, the chaplains, uh, as a general rule, um, don't go to the cell blocks unless they have a particular business there. Um, I think that has to do with a certain kind of um, the, the, the discomfort of the experience, um, a, a desire to um, maintain their relationships with the with the with their parishioners and especially with the men who work in the chapel um, to to kind of uh, deal with them as colleagues and not necessarily as men who are locked behind bars where you see everything that they have in the world. Uh, so that so the chaplains have that kind of. Uh, unwritten understanding of how they move in the prison. And uh, I followed their lead on that for better uh, or for worse. Um, I had wanted to go to uh, the, the block, the cell block where the parole violators live uh, to see their Bible study. And I asked a few times and I was always kind of brushed off. So anyway, I ended up assimilating that. Um, and I, there were definitely prisoners uh, uh, who said that I was making a mistake in doing so because, uh, you know, it's really on the cell blocks where the story uh, of the prison takes place, but um, I uh, tend to embrace uh, arbitrary uh, boundaries in terms of uh, research and also especially in terms of writing. So, uh, so anyway, so that was the choice that I made in the field. Mm -hmm. And what sort of rights do prisoners have in such a prison to religious practice? Um, a great many rights, I mean, relative to the other rights that they enjoy. So, I mean, I think the way to think about it is... Um, you know, we, we, we think of uh, the First Amendment right to free religious exercise as a as a as a founding principle, uh, and it is. But it's it's only in the, in the 20th century that that comes to be interpreted. And prisoners, the front of prisoners' rights was a, was a key front uh, uh, in that struggle. So you had um, a bunch of Supreme Court cases in the 1960s brought by uh, people who didn't want to go fight in Korea, uh, even though they were uh, Buddhist or secular humanists, and and the law at that time was that you had to affirm a uh, belief in a creator God. Uh, so that expanded the notion of what counted as, as religion under the, under the first amendment. Uh, but then you had in the late, in the, in the, in the sixties and seventies, you had, uh, prisoners, uh, uh, suing, uh, um, uh, their, uh, the state, um, in order to have the right to practice religions that up to that point weren't recognized. Uh, the, the sort of the most notable being uh, members of the nation of Islam, making mm -hmm. space for Islam in the prisons. And so anyway, that was, uh, that expansion was pretty radical. And the principle of equal protection, uh, even if the court has kind of gotten out of the regulating religion business somewhat, the principle of equal protection applies. So you have, um, you know, one of the uh, kind of opening gambits of the book is that uh, I, I, I say how I said to my advisor, after uh, a number of months at the prison, that that uh, the, the chapel at Greaterford Prison was is the the most religiously diverse realist, uh, sliver of real estate in the history of the world, right? Because you have like this, you have this like two three acre plot of land in which uh, twelve religious denominations share space, uh, and so and that that's all that infrastructure is is uh, is now embedded in the law and in the administration. So you know the expansions that took place in 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 prisoners' religious life in the sixties and seventies were. Uh, were paralleled by expansions in uh, counseling opportunities, educational opportunities, uh, things of that sort. Um, now, the, the, the shift to the, to the era of carceral control that's accompanied uh, the rise of mass incarceration you know, has led to radical restrictions on those other things, most notably in the 90s where prisoners uh, were, no, were declared no longer eligible for Pell Grants uh, so as to pursue uh, college mm -hmm. educations. So that stuff was taken away in the current era, but uh, you can't take away uh, religious rights. Um, so prisoners, you know, they, they have the right to go down to the chapel, um, uh, you know, and, and, and it, it's, it's a right that is um, that in some way belongs to an older era because it can't be taken away. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I know your book is an ethnography. I hate to ask these sort of statistical questions, but I'm just interested. What percentage of prisoners uh, at Greaterford or broadly sort of participate in yeah. the, the religious life of the, the chapel in a prison? Yeah, it's uh, like it's it's a it's a guess. But, you know, from from kind of tallying it up, you know, so Greaterford has maybe thirty five hundred men. And I would say that on your in an average month, uh, somewhere like a third of the men in the jail uh, will come down to the chapel. Now, that doesn't give you an exact answer to your question, yeah. because, you know, America, American religionists are, are famously um, individualist and anti-institutional. Yeah. So certainly among the Muslims um, uh, and, and as well, you know, among the Christians, those are the dominant groups, you have people who uh, have faith commitments and who engage in, in, in practices, uh, religious practices, but who don't come down to the chapel for mm-hmm. one reason or another. But, uh, but I, yeah, I, I estimate it as, uh, just from counting up the numbers as, uh, as a third, I, you know, and, and like in Ramadan, I, I would assume that that number is, is higher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So tell us a little bit about the chaplaincy there. Um, who, who are the people who serve as chaplains? How many are there? And can you just introduce us to them? Yeah. Um, there are five at the time that the book takes place. Um, the, the head chaplain uh, is a, um, a liberal Lutheran uh, jazz musician. Is there any um, other kind, really? I. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I didn't. I guess. I guess he is a stereotype. Uh, but he's he's a new stereotype to me. But uh, he's a he's a he's a pluralist and a liberal. He actually got a PhD in Hebrew Bible at Drop. Yeah, there you go. Which is a right. Jewish seminary. Um, and uh, and that and so he, it's really um, he. I mean the. The, the the agencies which account for the range of religious practices at Greaterford are many. Uh, the chaplains, uh, all of the, the prisoners, the administrators. But he, he I think, uh, exerts a rather uh, influential role. Uh, he's called Reverend Baumgartner uh, in the book um, because he is a, a liberal pluralist um, uh, who is very committed to uh, the idea that uh, there is not uh, one way uh, to get with your God, mm-hmm. uh, that there are any number of of ways and that his job is to try to enable um, uh, the structure by which people uh, can get uh, can can practice their religion authentically. He uses yes. the word authentic a lot uh, according to their own faith tradition. So there's Baumgartner. Uh, there is uh, there are two uh, African uh, chaplains, uh, Keita, who is uh, a Methodist from Sierra Leone, uh, and um, uh, the Imam. Uh, who is uh, from Nigeria. Uh, then there is a, a Catholic uh, priest from Pennsylvania. And who, and then there is a, uh, a rabbi who comes in uh, a couple times a week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do these fellows get along? Do they all get along? Yeah. Um, yeah. They, I mean, so the, the, the one potential outlier is the, 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 the Catholic priest who is, um, uh, much more uh, on the on the conservative end of the political spectrum, um, and so would sometimes squabble uh, uh, with the other with the other chaplains. But no, they had they had a very uh, a very good working relationship, and so that's where you know I um, you know they are um, look uh, toward the end of my field work. I, I was I was I was talking to one of the uh, one of the the characters in the book, and and I said you know I, I gotta I gotta move on. Um, uh, uh, and they said, why? And I said, well, you know, I, I have no function here. And, and he said, yeah, you and 85% of our staff. Um, so, so I don't, and, you know, it is uh, one of the things, one of the ways I like to frame uh, the, the chapel at Greaterford is that it is, you know, one of these post-industrial workplaces like you see in the office or parks and recreation. You know, uh, it's a workplace where nothing is produced. So I don't want to overly romanticize uh, the chaplains. Like there is a kind of grinding deadening. You know, these are idealistic men. Uh, they care. Um, uh, they mean well. Uh, uh, but there is a grinding, deadening uh, um, quality to, uh, to life at this job. And day in, day out, uh, most everybody um, uh, are, you know, just trying to get through the day and get home. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can, I can imagine that. It comes out in the book as well. So tell us a little bit about, uh, let's introduce the cast of characters. You meet a lot of people, obviously, uh, in the book. Um, four of them are central. Um, so could you introduce us to them? Yeah. Um, so, uh, in any order, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right. So, um, 
this is uh, Baraka, uh, Teddy, Al, and Saeed, Saeed yeah. um, who are set up as, as the central characters. Uh-huh. Um, uh, they are all, um, so like all of the, so they, they are drawn from the ranks of the chapel workers. So in addition to the chapel regulars who come down and lead and participate in the, uh, the 50 or so, um, uh, uh, worship, uh, worship services, textual studies and musical group rehearsals that, that, um, that constitute the weekly chapel schedule. Um, you have 15 men who work in the chapel, uh, as clerks and janitors, um, uh, labor for which they're compensated between 19 and 41 cents an hour, uh, with say, so save one, all of the uh, chapel workers are serving uh, the sentence of life without the possibility of parole for homicide. Uh, Pennsylvania is a state where life me- makes you parole ineligible. And whereas uh, up through the 90s, uh, there was a fairly robust commutation system uh, with the, the, the tough on crime policies that really took over nationwide, but were imposed uh, in Pennsylvania by uh, Governor Tom Ridge, who'd go on to be uh, Bush's first director of Homeland Security, um, they got rid of commutation. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with men who've been in prison for a very, very long time. Uh, uh, they All the chapel workers, as I came to discover, are also from South Philadelphia. And there are ways that uh, in, in, uh, that um, religious fault lines recapitulate certain kinds of other sociological fault lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that men say, uh, I think this is a slight exaggeration, but there's some measure of truth to it, is that if I didn't know somebody on the outside, I'm not going to get to know him here. So intimacies in the prison uh, carry, uh, carry over certain kinds of boundaries uh, from the outside. So um, Baraka has been in prison as long as I've been alive. I was born in 1974. He's really, um, uh, I'd say, the, the central character uh, of the book, uh, and I refer to him as an informal dissertation advisor because he, t- he takes me under wing and is very interested in telling me how things are and sometimes, you know, and in, and in drilling me and in sometimes in erecting obstacles. Um, uh, he's, a, he's a very special individual, uh, and he and I have, a, I think, a, a very rich relationship. So he, uh, he uh, is from South Philly, serving life um, in and came up uh, in the Nation of Islam cadre, uh, which, you know, they convert en masse to Sunni Islam upon Elijah Muhammad's death in 1975. But he retains that ethos. Uh, he is, you know, politically minded, sociologically minded, um, uh, thinks that uh, what really matters is uh, economics um, and that religion is uh, provides a set of tools for individual and group uplift. And that was the dominant ethos in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, to, to see religious practice in those terms now is to uh, make you something of a dinosaur. So that's Baraka. Um, Al is Baraka's, uh, they're friends from the outside. They, they ran with the same crew. Al um, uh, used to uh, also be in the Nation of Islam, although um, one day uh, on, his, on his way to uh, hurt someone, um, uh, God, you know, he, God struck him dead. And, uh, you know, you know about um, Al's past uh, excesses because he's uh, now a, a Bible-believing Christian, and so one of his central practices is to uh, deliver testimony to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to God's power, and part of that is talking about how God was looking out for you even back when you were just an awful, awful, awful person, mm-hmm. this in, in the kind of, you know, uh, Augustinian tradition right. yeah. of talking about your past sins. Um, so that's Al. He's, he is in, um, kind of a, he's a, he is moody. He, he's a big, heavy man, super moody. Uh, and his presence, his, his mood really uh, shapes a room. He's also a musician. So he is off and on the head of the Sunday choir and he has his own gospel group. Uh, there are five gospel groups that trade off performing in, in the Sunday Protestant service. Uh, Al, um, is, uh, becomes very interested over the course of my field work uh, in in saving my soul. Mm-hmm. And so he and I end up having very uh, interesting arguments about uh, what it is that we believe in and why and how it is that we will defend ourselves come the end of days if we're forced to. Mm-hmm. Um, Teddy is, uh, so Al and, and Baraka are both uh, in their 50s. Teddy is maybe a decade their junior, also serving life, um, also a Christian, uh, 
also he's he is the uh, al al and and Barack are in some sense finished products they are um self-controlled in the way that when you've been in a prison for a very, very long time, you are able to control yourself uh, because if you can't control yourself, you will get hurt uh, during the day or you will end up in the hole because you'll you'll react to some kind of humiliation or to some kind of threat. Um, and you also, uh, if you can't control yourself uh, at night, then you will succumb to all sorts of despair. Uh, Teddy is younger and, and not all the way... Uh, not all the way where they are yet. And he struggles a lot. He struggles a lot because uh, he still has a lot of hope that he's going to get out of prison. And, and like everybody else there, he's working on his case uh, to some degree. And, and, and that, you know, that's um, uh, means like investing a lot of, um, a lot of hope in some very far fetched um, uh, scenarios. Um, uh, He is uh, incredibly funny um, really human. Uh, he he is to me the, the most uh, human element uh, in, in the chapel, um, uh, because he's he hurts and and he's 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 so it, the men take seriously this you know nobody likes a downer. Uh, there's one of the chapel workers who likes to meditate about how how god awful everything is and nobody wants to be around that. Uh, you know, because it's, you know, it's too easy to become depressed. And so Teddy is generally quite positive, but when he's struggling, you can really tell he's struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then there's Saeed, who is Teddy's childhood friend. There are actually four of them, uh, three of them central characters who grew up in the same block in South Philadelphia, who all serving life without the possibility of parole. So, you know, for people who want to see these crimes, it's in some sense, the sui generis actions of, of, of bad men, um, you know, clearly the, yeah. uh, the crime happened somewhere in the middle of the story. These, these, these four boys and three of them are featured all, you know, uh, they're not boys anymore, but they were boys. Uh, uh, they grew up together and, and, and they all were thrown into circumstances that led to terrible choices that destroyed other people's lives and, and destroyed their own lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Saeed is, uh, friends with, 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 with Teddy and he is a, uh, a Muslim, uh, he is a, uh, a Salafi Muslim, and, and Salafism is the, the dominant religious mode in the city of Philadelphia now. Uh, it is um, uh, a practical perfectionism, a sort of post-secular um, approach. You know, this is Salafism is a kind of global flagship of the thing that's often called Wahhabism. Uh, so it's about, you know, you want to live your life just as, as the, the prophets did. Um, uh, sorry, just as, excuse me, that, that was, that was heretical. Just as the prophet Muhammad mm-hmm, and, yeah. and his, and, and the pious predecessors did, um, you know, in some way all Sunnis aspire to that. As Salafis really take it to, uh, 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 an extreme. Um, uh, so they become, um, this, you know, very, per, personal purity practices uh, take on a special importance in uh, in the performance of self and in and in, and in the the designation of people who are who are doing uh, Islam uh, the wrong way. Um, also of interest is that the particular strain of Salafism that dominates in Philadelphia um, uh, is avowedly apolitical, uh, and it, 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 I think that it is it's because of a particular history in the Middle East. Uh, this uh, failed coup at the Grand Mosque in, in 1979, that this Medhali strain of Salafism uh, swears off politics. But then also, um, you could see why a, a traditionalist African-American Muslim in the city of Philadelphia after 9-11 would want to be very clear to certain kinds of state authorities that they're not about, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, engaging in politics. And then, sim- but that works well with these with these men because they also are adamant in showing uh, the the sect that used to belong to the nation of Islam that they are uh, that they are true Muslims and they're not merely just doing politics uh, in the name of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Said is um, uh, very serious and doctrinaire, but also rather hilarious. Um, uh, he's uh, like many of these men. He is. His background is unschooled, but he is an intellectual now. Um, uh, you know, people who serve life in prison, uh, like graduate students and like not that many other um, <laughs> sectors of our society, uh, have a lot of time to uh, work on uh, intellectual matters if they feel so inclined. And Saeed um, is very serious about studying Arabic. Uh, he takes the Arabic class of another prisoner once a week, and he is avid. He's a student in uh, Villanova University. He has a Bachelor of Arts program, and he's a student in that. Uh-huh. Um, 
And so that's Said. And then the, the week that I selected, this is a, the, the book which begins Monday and concludes on Sunday and then actual week, the week being uh, in January 2006, uh, which I selected in order for it to be a, a quote unquote normal week. I, I didn't want um, it to be during Ramadan or Christmas season. I wanted something that was just normal and boring um, uh, in the way that life in prison is, is regimented and normal and boring and, and, and repetitive. But it so happens that something um, happened during the week, uh, um, something that was exceptional, but also generic uh, to their lives there. And what that something was is that on Tuesday, uh, Saeed is, is picked up uh, uh, on suspicion of something or other and is uh, kept first in custody in a cell, and then he's moved uh, to the hole. And, um, and that's the last I've ever seen Saeed. Really? So, yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, he, I mean, yeah, you mentioned that the yeah. book does go through um, seven days that you hoped were typical but weren't typical, it turned out. Um, but I don't know, maybe it is pretty typical that someone disappears in prison. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I, that's exactly right. Yeah. And it's also the case that, you know, this is the, in, informs the, one of the things that informs uh, the choice of the form and the choice of the method uh, is, you know, a, a faith in, 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 in describing particularities that, um, you know, all generic things, if you, pay close enough attention turn out to be exceptional. Yeah. Right. And that's why you end up, uh, you know, that's why you read literature. Sure. And sometimes that's what um, the mode of, of, you know, academic form where you're making an argument and you're selecting uh, the evidence that fits your argument sometimes ends up washing away uh, some of that, uh, uh, that, diversity and plurality mm-hmm. um, and idiosyncrasy in, in, the, in the form of the book that, I, that you know, I've chosen is to really dial up those things. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's tell the story then. Uh, a typical day is Monday. What happens on Monday? Monday is atypical, only in that um, uh, there are no uh, activities on the schedule, right? So um, as I, you know, the, the, the chapel schedule, there are, there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five formal spaces in the chapel uh, where uh, where activities take place. There's the main chapel. There's the annex, uh, which was built uh, onto the chapel um, after 1995, when uh, this new regime of cultural control was instituted. Prior to 95, the various Muslim groups all had their own mosques in the basement under the chapel. That was shut down after 95, and then they built this big cinder block annex. So you have the the main chapel, the annex, and then two classrooms, and then something that's called the conference room, where the musical groups uh, rehearse. Um, and uh, so any, you know, there are three activity blocks every day, um, uh, eight in the morning to 11 in the morning, one in the afternoon to 3.30 in the afternoon, and six in the evening to 8.30 in the evening. And uh, every day, except for Monday, you have this slate of, 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 worship services, Bible studies, musical group rehearsals. Monday, uh, the chapel's closed. So um, Monday is just the chapel workers and uh, uh, the imam and Reverend Baumgartner uh, mm-hmm. who are there. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, the correctional officer who, who's on during the day. And, um, and Monday, you know, people sit around. And, right, but uh, don't you, I mean, aren't there, I mean, uh, how do I put this and not be, not reveal my total ignorance of many things. Aren't there some religions in which you have to do stuff every day? <laughs> That's not ignorant at all. Okay. Right. Um, you know? right. I mean, so this is, this is right. So, um, you know, back, yeah, you, you do, but the, you, when you're in prison, you don't get to don't do get it to every do day. And this is the, this is, this, uh, this is allows me to provide a better answer to a question you asked earlier. So, you know, back in the day in this, in this period before 1995, um, where the Muslims had their spaces downstairs, um, they were able to make corporate prayer uh, for three of the five daily prayers mm-hmm. and they could stay down there and they could be, so there are five at, at Greaterford, there are five, I believe there are five daily counts where the prisoners are all counted. Mm-hmm. Nowadays you have to be in your cell to be counted back in the older days. Uh, you could be out in an activity. So um, uh, it used to be that the Muslims could, you know, could, um, mm. could make prayer, um, uh, uh, as they say, um, you know, three times a day. Now the Muslims are allowed, they, they can make, um, always they can do Juma on Friday. And, you know, depending on uh, where you are in the calendar year and what time exactly prayer happens, the, the chapel workers and other Muslims that might happen to be around can make prayer together uh, at odd times. But no, they, they get one yeah. corporate prayer a week. And that's where the, the, um, the, it's uh, the, 
the mandate to equal protection does have a way of leveling things down to uh, a more kind of normative um, uh, Protestant and especially liberal Protestant way of doing religion, yeah. right? In which, like, I mean, what you you have to go to you have to go to mosque more than once a week, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, that's that is you know throughout this the kind of the the very very real religious diversity right. that 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 you see in the chapel is regulated by by Protestant norms, right. you know, that Protestant norms that are imposed with a hammer. Yeah. So um, I don't I don't know if there's a name for that, but it should be called the Hanukkah effect. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The way that things drift. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. And, but you know, but the way that these things work is that they work dialectically, yeah. right? So you have it's the very Hanukkah effect of, of liberal Protestantism yeah. that also informs the the you know what would be called the backlash and the you know which is the production of things like Protestant fundamentalism yeah. and. Uh, um, Salafism that precisely reject that kind of mm-hmm. um, mealy-mouthed, yeah. um, oh, this this little very this this religion that's supposed to have this very uh, nice little niche within the kind of secular order, right? right. That that's dialectical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's that very yeah. that the, the the drift toward one uh, necessitates in some way the uh, the the development of the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's move on to Tuesday then. Uh, yeah. Tell us what happened Tuesday. Uh, so Tuesday you have this this uh, this this slate of activities, and so you know the the morning begins with uh, the Episcopal group uh, praying and uh, and and the parole violators having their Bible study, and uh, uh, and in the afternoon you have Muslims coming down to study, although only a few of them. Um, uh, in the evening you have the Jews having a, a, a study session, and you have a group called Yoke Fellows having uh, a Christian fellowship. Um, and so I drift in and out of those activities, and uh, you know, and but I also spend uh, uh, intimate time with this kind of growing cast of of ten or so. Uh, m- of the chapel workers that are really featured, but it's also on Tuesday where you have this uh, the, this real event, and 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 that's where um, uh, suddenly this 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 guy, uh, um, uh, his name is uh, in the book. He's called Jabril, and he comes down. He's he's a real character because he's uh, he used to box, and there used to be a traveling boxing team in the prison. This is back in like a much older era, mm-hmm. and uh, he um, he's kind of a celebrity. He he carries himself with a real air. Um, he's really stylish. Uh, he's a Salafi Muslim with a kind of beard that he pulls. Some of the Salafi, you know, the Salafi mark themselves by wearing their pants high and honoring a hadith that says that you can't let your pants drag in the hellfire. And they, and they, uh, some of them pull their beards to a point. Uh, anyway, so he comes and he's, he's, he carries himself with celebrity air because he taught, um, Bernard Hopkins had a fight. Mm-hmm. Bernard Hopkins, uh, now no longer, but for about a decade, uh, uh, was the middleweight champion of the world uh, who learned how to fight at Greaterford Prison. Anyway, so he shows up in the chapel and he's looking for information about Saeed and that's where um, uh, everybody, that's where you find out that uh, that Saeed has been picked up on suspicion of something or other mm-hmm. and it kind of shatters the, the numb routine right. um, with this kind of air of palpable excitement and right. concern. Right, so the waters are disturbed and what happens? Yes, yeah. yes. Exactly. The water is disturbed, you know, and really by, uh, and it's quite, you know, everyone is very concerned for him and, uh, and it's, and it's troubling for the chaplains because the day in day out vibe of in, in the chapel, not necessarily of like your, your random, uh, prisoner who comes down for services, but the day in day out vibe among the, the chaplains and the correctional officers who work in the chapel and the, the 15 prisoner workers, the, the, the vibe there is that of a workplace and they're all, they're all colleagues, they're colleagues in their own, in their own, in, in, in their way. And like, as I said, as I said, in comparing to the office and parks and recreation, you know, there's a lot of joking around and playing and all that. And, um, and then when events happen where, the kind of imposition of that kind of state violence, um, everyone is kind of thrown into their proper corner, uh, you know, uh, either as the free person, 
whose job it is to be invested in the in the order uh, of custody, or a prisoner whose job it is to be um, kind of a suspect uh, and to be vulnerable. Uh, so that's that's everyone's thrown into that. Uh, but you know, by weeks end, uh, those ripples in the pond have been have been stilled. It only takes a few, you know, a day or two. Uh, and everything is kind of, you know, quote unquote, back to normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, the, one of the hopes uh, in writing the book uh, is to um, is to call attention to the, the 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 many modes of this quote unquote normal, and to show just how uh, abnormal and insane that it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, it's very interesting you say this. I was I was interviewing someone who uh, studies. Um, uh, so, so German perpetrators in World War II, and and, I, and he was in the military himself. And I asked him what he learned from the study, and and one of the things he said is that you know too often when we think of groups of people, we think of them as homogeneous, when when in fact it's the case that they're all individuals, and it's kind they they relate to each other differently, and ju- just as in life, you know, he says we sort of forget this, and you know if you were to think of the chapel as a unit, it doesn't really make much sense because all these people are different. And they all react differently to things. They have different relations to one another. And to understand what goes on there, you really kind of have to know them. This is what this fellow said about military units as well, that they're all personalities, you know, that they're people. I mean, that's – yes, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Continue. Yeah, and and that basically to understand anything that happens – in this case, it was mass murder. In order to understand exactly how people reacted, you have to know their relations to other people. It just, yeah. it's incomprehensible without that knowledge. And, and he was able to get that in his study. And he also said when he was a tank commander in Iraq, it was the same thing. That, that yeah. in order to get anything done, you had to know these people. Yeah. I mean, this is where, uh, this, you know, this is why the, this book, um, takes the floor more of literature than of scholarship. Yeah. And, and it does so p- for political reasons, especially when you're writing about a class that's so easily, um, pre-known. Right. That's so easily known as, uh, you know, because we do define prisoners generally by virtue of, of their crimes. Uh, you know, we know what these people are. And uh, no, we, we don't. Right. Because that's the, the fact that we're willing to re- reduce uh, someone to a single action of their life. Um, that tells us as much about us as it tells us about them, right? Mm-hmm. We're at a moment in time where that kind of brutal hermeneutic is, is what we do to people who are incarcerated. But, you know, that, that tells us about ourselves. It doesn't necessarily tell us about these people. So, you know, uh, this is, this is the, the struggle. Uh, and this is why, you know, I, I um, really have a feel and uh, called to giving an account of, of just the, 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 the particulars of things and, and, and the texture of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can, there is, structure is real. Um, historical moments are, are real and in some way shape the range of, 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 of options that we can take. And so this is a book about mass incarceration and it is a book about American pluralism and it is, it is a book about neoliberalism, right? And those, uh, those are as, as, the structures that uh, enable the range of choices, uh, you know, those things are very real. But on the ground, you're just dealing with a always with just a mess of uh, of personalities um, and circumstances and varieties. And that's really in this book feels like there is both analytically and politically uh, real value to uh, to getting at that texture, right? Mm-hmm. It's um, you know it's it's easy to uh, in, you know in some way commitments. Commitments are always to particulars. You know, it's like you can love cats, but it's like, but it's your cat. It's yeah. your cat that you right. love. You know, it's like this is the problem with Alyosha Karamazov, right? Yeah. Alyosha Karamazov, he loves all people equally. And you know what? He's like a bad Christian at yeah. the end of the day because it's too flat and it's actually dehumanizing because he doesn't actually see the other, I yeah. think Dostoevsky would say. Yeah. And certainly Ivan would say. Yeah. And, and, you know, and like one can have commitments to prisoners, um, you know, but my relationship to the problems of, of mass incarceration in America, at least, uh, my problem, my relationship has have, have changed dramatically because I am now bound to a set of individuals, mm-hmm. like via relationships. And, and maybe there's no way to communicate that through writing. And maybe there's no way that my reader can develop those kind of relationships. But at the very least, I can model what it is to develop those kind of relationships. And, and the reader can think about uh, how he or she uh, is bound uh, in their own lives. 
lives to people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting you say that, and it's one of the reasons I, I I wanted to read the book because I happen to know by another connection a lot of people that have been in prison, and mm-hmm. not to give away the punchline, but I have seen them redeemed, and it's uh-huh. a, it's a miracle to me because these were bad people, <laughs> and they're really not bad people anymore. I can't figure it out exactly, but they aren't bad people anymore. But anyway, we'll come to that in a second, and let's move on through the week. What happens on Wednesday? Um. I mean, it's because, so time in the one hand on the book is linear, and then on the other hand, time is not linear at all. Uh, so beginning on Tuesday, uh, as the week moves ahead, um, uh, throughout there are all these wormholes where I get into other things that happen in my field work and, and especially in uh, uh, landmarks and getting to know these men. But really, be, so beginning on, on Tuesday, uh, when on Tuesday afternoon you have the uh, – uh, um, uh, the the session uh, Talim, where Muslims are able to study in the chapel, and you see that there are only actually five Muslims there, even though uh, on paper a quarter of the prison is Muslim. And the question is, why are there only five mm-hmm. there? And to answer that question, uh, I go back uh, in my field work to what people have told me, but then go back to 1995 and tell the story of the raid and the raid where this uh, this um, uh, regime of cultural con- uh, this regime of carceral control uh, was imposed. Um, uh, the book, among other things, tries to be genealogical. So, uh, whereas it's very, the book I felt like had to take place in the present tense because the present tense is in some real way the only tense that, that is real. And, the, and if any kind of uh, radical revolutionary change is going to take place, uh, it always has to be uh, in the present tense to be effective. If, if it remains in the future tense, it's just a kind of a messianic deferral. So, the, the book is very committed to how, you know, the practice of things is in the present. And the very fact that it's in the present means that even things that seem to be settled, this is, I'm about to go teach Nietzsche uh, in, in half an hour, but even, even and especially things that, that are present themselves as being uh, settled uh, are actually highly contested yeah. and therefore fragile. So, uh, you know, that, that is why the book's in the present. But meanwhile, it's so as to not reify the the arbitrary uh, contested set of contingencies that you find in the present, the book feels compelled in some way to give an, a historical account of how that came to be, mm-hmm. both in terms of uh, the, the revolutions uh, in prison administration and uh, the major revolutionary changes in normative Muslim practice. Right. So on Wednesday, so this begins on Tuesday with the 90s, and on Wednesday I go back to uh, the 70s and 80s, and on Thursday uh, I go back to the late 60s and early 70s to show, you know, this kind of general uh, the split between the nation of Islam and what would have been called orthodox up to the present day with this kind of uh, residual uh, uh, politically engaged Warathin Muhammad faction and the dominant Salafi faction. And by Friday, I'm back in the present with that story and uh, and, and sort of do a kind of uh, analysis uh, of those groups in the present and and, and the various things that they disagree about and how and why. And then on and then on Saturday, I actually, um, in, in a kind of uh, a Sabbatarian fermata uh, in the course of the week, um, I, I go back to the very beginning of time. Uh, and, I rec- and I recount uh, the beginning of time from creation or something like it uh, to through the ascendancy of mass incarceration. That happens in about four or five paragraphs. But I include that because that's, that's in dialogue with the, with the men of the chapel for whom uh, – the fact of creation or, or when creation happened and why creation happened and according to whom creation happened has such a direct bearing to how one is to live one's life. And, you know, as a secular, or I said secularist earlier, that's, you know, that's probably exaggeration, but as a secular, you know, I'm not, to me, who created the world or how the world came into being and why, you know, is does not really matter for how I am to live my life and how I'm to live my life is itself something that you have to figure out, uh, you know, o- over the course of, a uh, 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 you know, experience precedes essence. And so you have to figure it out and you're constantly negotiating between competing, uh, imperatives. But anyway, so I do give that account of, uh, of as far as I can tell, um, how is it that the world came into being and how is it that we end up here at this moment? Mm-hmm. And by extension, um, uh, uh, look how, you know, something like mass incarceration uh, that is so pervasive and it's so hard to imagine our world without it. Look at how um, at how freaking new it is and how weird it is. Oh, yeah. And, you know, historically, mm-hmm. uh, these kinds of institutions of modernity are so new and so weird. And um, 
and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's figure out um, a, a different way of going about things. Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way because sometimes I think. Uh, and I ask my students this sometimes. I say, you know, values change a lot. And there are things that even people that we very much admire believed that we can't believe they believed, you know, Margaret Sanger, like euthanasia or something like that. Um, and I always ask them, like, uh, you know, we're no different than them. And so which of the things that we believe is right is going to be wrong in 100 years? You know, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, and in this respect, you know, it's like this is, uh, uh, you know, Antonin Scalia, uh, not necessarily an intellectual hero of mine, uh, also says, you know, that values don't only evolve, they can also decay, right? And so this is where um, it isn't just that values change, it's that, you know, it was people fighting adamantly uh, in the beginning uh, of the 19th century, taking a position that was very, uh, at the time, radical, that uh, white people ought yeah. not owe, own black people, yeah. uh, that it was the actions of men and women that made over time, uh, uh, you know, uh, in addition to, of course, structural changes that made that position over time uh, abhorrent. Right. And, um, you know, a future. It, so it, it isn't I have no faith that that time or history is on our side, uh, but a future in which we don't look back at our contemporary practices of of uh, incarcerating so many of our uh, fellow citizens, especially in the United States, where we have, you know, uh, 20, uh, we have a fifth of the world's population and 25 percent of its prisoners. A future where we don't look back on that with horror is a dystopia. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I can't forget who it was. And some some listener will undoubtedly remind me. But the fellow said it was English. Who was it? But anyway, it was a. Someone in the 19th century, I think, you would take the measure of society, look at their hospitals yeah. and prisons. Yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's funny. Or somebody, I, but I yeah. try to. It's actually so um, to understand the society and look at its prisons. It's it's people. I don't know where that's from, and it frustrates me. And it's <laughs> quoted by one of the by one of the characters in the book, and it's actually uh, in the publisher's weekly review. He mentioned he, he he cites that, and it's generally attributed to Constance Garnett's translation of, uh, 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 of Dostoevsky's, wow. um, um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his, uh, his, his prison novel. Um, uh, I don't know. Anyway, I'm embarrassed to but, say, I, yeah. but I tried to chase, I tried to uh, trace, you know, I tried to chase down, uh, the citation and I was unable to locate it. I'll so look maybe, for you. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I got good Google food. I think I can probably find it. But uh, I, I, the way I heard it was look at their hospitals and prisons, not just, yeah. not just prisons, but you know, we can't get through the week and we're taking up a lot of your time and you got to go te teach Nietzsche. But there are a couple of questions I want to ask you if you have another couple of seconds. I do. Sure. Okay, good. So one question, really there are only two questions. One question is, and I don't know if this is answerable given the, uh, individuality of the people you talk about. What does religion do for people in prison? Yeah. Um, you can't just say, well, that's, that's a ridiculous question, Marshall. Are you, know, you an idiot? I, it's, no, no, this is no, I mean, look, the, the book has this fluid, uh, uh, novelistic style, but the first editor that I, I ended up working with two editors at Farrar Strauss and the first editor that I worked with was, you know, demanded that I, that I give account, that I give answers to questions like that. And yeah. so I do provide them in a set of uh, what I call theses that precede the various chapters beginning on Tuesday. And it's, um, uh, I provide in, the, in those in those passages of the book, you know, um, a variety of different ways to answer that question, and 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 I'm not committed to any one because I'm I'm of the belief that you know the theoretical framework that you bring to answer that question goes a long way toward answering the question itself. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of uh, paranoid. A practice theory version of that question, which is, what does religion do? It takes convicts and makes them prisoners, which is to say, uh, a people with the know-how uh, to survive prison, right? That's one of the things that it does. Uh, what does it do? Well, um, it takes men, this is a different answer to that question, uh, it takes men uh, who have struggled with impulse control and gives them the vocabulary and the practices to, uh, in, to uh, engage in kinds of, of in personal mastery where they don't just react. Uh, what does it do? Uh, it takes men uh, who uh, who had a very brutal and individualist uh, notion uh, of manhood, and it transvalues manhood such that manhood isn't about defeating others. Manhood is about surrendering oneself. You know, so it, there's there's really a, a great number of answers to that question, mm -hmm. and I and I try to provide them in a book, uh, and, and I provide them in a and this is apropos of, of of the structure of the book and of time. They're in the book in a latter temporality. They're in it's it's th those are presented in the book in a and it's years later 
and and I it's, it's subtly done, but it's you know it's uh, the first thesis introduced with the preamble. Um, years from now, at a critical moment in the composition of this book, I will pen ten theses. Mm-hmm. So it's after having struggled with all this material for years and years that that I come to posit certain kinds of answers to those questions, and I share them with the reader. Uh, but the but that those kinds of clean synopses. Um, are meant to stand in tension to the, to the flow and mess of the mm-hmm, rest of the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure, that's fair. So let me ask you another um, unfair question. I, I don't know if it's an unfair question. It'll be my final question before I ask you the final question. So I guess that would yeah. be the penultimate question to be fancy about it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned your own uh, religiosity, such as it is. Uh, how did uh, writing this book change your own religious practice and beliefs? Uh, it didn't. I mean, I, 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 I'm a work in progress in, in, in that regard, too. But, um, uh, but it, it, you know, it didn't. I, I came in as a, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool um, ethical Jew, uh, you know, so even though I have a, a, a yeshiva-ish background uh, uh, um, from, from the time that I was very young, um, I always understood that uh, if there are two, there are two classes of commandments: commandments that pertain to our obligations to God, and the commandments that pertain to our obligations to our fellow man and woman. Uh, I always uh, was strongly on the side of the latter of those being the ones that matter, and that's always been true for me, whether I've been uh, in the in the habit of going to synagogue or not going yeah. to synagogue. I mean, it so happens that I now have a couple of kids: a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and uh, and and the ways that we work in the early 21st century are so grueling. And especially if you're an academic, the boundaries between work and not work are so hard Mm. to erect. And so for those reasons, you know, for that reason, uh, I've, my, my wife and I, we've, we've fought hard to institute uh, the practice of the Sabbath, for example. In addition to that, in addition to that, you know, there's like uh, going to synagogue is a solution to the weekend problem because suddenly you have these little kids and you don't, you have no idea what to do with them. And especially if you live in Rochester, New York, you can't just take them out. Outside. So, you know, we go to synagogue now, and, but, that, but those are all, you know, and that's, this isn't remotely cynical. It's quite earnest, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, th- that's the kind of thing that's affected my relationship to my practice. Uh, 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 the, the relevant practices of my time at, at Greaterford have to do with, uh, you know, a, a different set of concerns, and that is, okay, so uh, I've, this, uh, this has been a great experience. These men gave me a lot. Um, this book uh, is going to do things for me. It has done things for me that will uh, allow me to have the sort of career I want. Okay, so what? What then am I in for now? You know, right. what am I in for? Right. And 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 as far as I can tell, if I'm not in for life in some significant sense, then I'm a scoundrel. Right. So um, so I, so you know, I need to be in for it for life, and what that means can change over time. But uh, you know, I, I, I teach in prisons. Uh, I, I I try to uh, organize um, with uh, with other kinds of uh, activists and people who are trying to uh, change the way that we punish. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I need to be uh, in for it in that regard. That's, that's a good answer. I like that answer very much. I mean, just to reflect on my experience a little bit, and I've already talked about it, when I kind of came into the church, so to say, uh, into my spiritual community, the thing that really impressed me was the fact that the people who uh, really had had very rough backgrounds and, and were rough characters were really transformed by the experience. And, and it um, provided kind of a model for me. And it provided a certain amount of hope uh, that that there could be a kind of um, personal transformation through through a certain kind of action or practice. Um, that's, and, that's, yeah, I mean, I don't know if other, I don't know if the prisoners felt that themselves, but I definitely. No, did. yes, yes, I'm the one who's somewhat skeptical about that because uh, I have a much more kind of fluid post structuralist notion of the self, whereby what is it that we're reifying when we when we say yeah. that someone is essentially this or that, but. I am a huge outlier in that. At a greater yeah. prison, that is precisely the anthropology that people have. People yeah. are essentially something, and it is precisely via that kind of uh, uh, experience of rupture, of taking a shahada, of giving yourself over to Christ, and then the 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 the, the regime of practices that such a conversion necessitates that you do become fundamentally something else. That is the dominant anthropology, and the language of transformation is precisely the language that. Uh, men, uh, uh, whether they be Christian or Muslim or something else, that is the language that they use. Yeah, yeah, I put myself in that category. I think I'm a different person than when I came in. I, you know, I did think I was one thing, <laughs> and the record shows yeah. that I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and now well, there's, you know, <laughs> but there's a real ethical utility to that kind of narrative, right? Yeah. It's like uh-huh. to, to mark what I, you know, 
uh, I was lost and now I'm found, right. to, to, to mark what you once were and to, and to assert and to declare publicly with the community, I am not what I once was. Yep. I am now living for something else. Yep, that's that's right. an exceedingly important practice, mm-hmm. whether you're a, you know, it, in some ways it's, it's like when you have a good therapist, the good therapist helps you with that practice too. Yeah. And when you have a bad therapist, <laughs> the bad therapist allows you to, to, uh, to, to linger indefinitely in that state of being non-transformed. Yeah, you know right, what I mean? Yeah. So, so in any case, it is, I think it is a, uh, that, to, to make those kind of declarations in a community with fellowship is a central practice for self-craft, whether one is religious or secular. That's extraordinarily well put. It's just really, really extraordinarily well put. Um, so today we've been talking to uh, uh, Joshua Dubler about his book, Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. Uh, Joshua, I want to have one very brief question. What are you working on now? I'm working on, on a couple of things. Um, the first uh, pertains to uh, the being in for it, as I, as I put it. Uh, um, uh, I'm working on a book uh, called uh, Break Every Yoke, and that's language uh, from Isaiah that the abolitionists used. Break Every Yoke, Religion, Power, and the End of Mass Incarceration. And that's a book that I'm writing with uh, a guy named Vincent Lloyd, who's a philosopher at Syracuse, and Chris mm-hmm. Garces, who's a, an anthropologist at Cornell. And we've been working together for a couple of years now, and we're trying to uh, you know, the animating kind of impulse of that book is that, uh, you know, from penitentiary days and certainly uh, up through the end of the 20th century, uh, religion has helped to uh, underwrite, American religion has helped to underwrite American mass incarceration in a number of ways. And it's going to take new kinds of conceptualizations in, uh, of religion and new religious practices to end mass incarceration. So we're, we're working on that book together. Um, uh, hopefully we'll have a, a finished uh, draft of that, uh, you know, within uh, uh, the calendar year. Uh, and then uh, I'm also be, beginning to work or, uh, on, I think, my next uh, man, uh, monograph that I'm going to write myself is a c- sort of cultural history of guilt in America, uh, a story that takes place at the, kind of, at the intersection of, uh, of criminal justice and, and psychoanalysis and yeah. theology and, yeah. and pop culture. Yeah, well, those sound like great, great projects. Good luck with them. And let me say to everybody again, we've been talking to Joshua uh, Dubler about his book, Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. I hope everybody goes out and, and buys it. Joshua, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so very much for having me. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Absolutely. And let me say that I'm Marshall Poe. I'm actually the host of New Books in History, but I'm subbing on uh, New Books in Religion because I really wanted to read Joshua book, brought Joshua's book. And let me also say uh, thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast and have a good week. 